Um, I'm going to be reading scripture this morning from Mark chapter 2. You can find it in your bulletin. Here's God's word. And when he returned to Capernaum some, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. What can God, who can forgive, who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of God. Uh, I'm Paul Major. I'm an intern here. What that means, um, for those of you that don't know, is uh, I'm a seminary student, so I'm in the process of getting a degree. Wow, now I'm a lot louder. Um, To be a pastor one day. And so what that means is that occasionally... Uh, Pastor Howard here will throw me in the deep end and watch me as I figure out how to swim. Um, so that's what today will be an example of. Um, so watch my form. Uh, <laughs> the only time I've ever ridden uh, in a police car was my junior year in high school. I was spending a lot of time with the wrong group of friends, and I was trying hard to impress them. So one day, my desire to be liked eclipsed my desire to think rationally and caused me to vandalize school property. Now, as you can imagine, it didn't take very long before I was sitting in the principal's office and he was telling me that I could easily be suspended or even arrested for what I had done. But if I go clean up my mess, we'll forget this ever happened. But someone, somewhere, had a different plan. They wanted to make an example of me. They wanted to show that you don't just vandalize school property and walk away scot-free. So there I was, junior in high school, scared to death as the police officer put me in the patrol car. I was the example held up for everyone to see so that everyone could know just as it had been done to me, so too it would be done to them. In the text for today, when Jesus heals this paralytic man, Jesus too makes an example of the paralytic man. But in this story, it's not a scare tactic like it was at my high school. Jesus makes an example of the paralytic So that everyone who sees, hears, or reads about it can know just how powerful Jesus is. He's not making an example of the man in order to keep everyone else in line. He's doing it in order to invite everyone in. 
for such a short story. This one is filled with elements that we see all over the gospel. We have Jesus presented as a miracle worker. We have him declaring that he is God. We have him ruffling the feathers of the religious elite, which is something he did so often. We even have the crowds, upon seeing what they came to see, declaring great things, but never really changing. Proof that talk is cheap. No wonder, then, this story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Of all the stories we have in the Gospels, this one is clearly essential to our understanding of who Jesus is. It's not to say that the other stories are not essential or less important or less true, but that this one, that it's told by three different men in three different ways to three different groups of people, means that it is required reading. For anyone who wants to know who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's still doing. For our purposes, we'll only look at Mark. um, But know that Matthew and Luke are in total agreement. And if you're the type that wants to go home and look at it, uh, they tell the exact same story. Some of the details differ, but the message is the same. Jesus is the Lord. He is willing and able to save us. Amen? Amen. Verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, every good Bible-believing Christian, and even those that aren't, know that Jesus isn't from Capernaum. He was born in the little town of Bethlehem, right? He grew up in Nazareth. So why does Mark tell us that Jesus is at home in Capernaum. Well, what the Greek actually says is that it was reported that he was in a house. That's a long jump from saying that he's merely in a building to that building happens to belong to him. But what we're told earlier in Mark is that he had moved to Capernaum He had moved from Nazareth, which if you know anything about Nazareth, it was a podunk little redneck village. Cars on blocks, you know, mostly trailer parks. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And Capernaum was this bustling city on the water. This was the place to be in the particular part of the world that Jesus was in. Um... So he had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, where there was a bigger crowd. And so this house that he was in was more more than likely his house. Um, It should be noted, though, that Jesus' home is actually probably the house of Peter. Jesus will forever be associated with that podunk little village of Nazareth, even though he sleeps and lives elsewhere. So the setting of the story for our purposes today is in the city of Capernaum, in the region of Galilee, the northern part of Judea, in the house of Peter the Apostle. Verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. 
this verse is telling because it automatically makes us ask the question, why were so many people gathered around? Was it just to hear his preaching and teaching? Were they gathering to hear those stories and parables that Jesus would tell? Were they coming to see Jesus ruffle the feathers of the religious elite? Or were they hoping to witness or even experience one of these miracles that had already been associated with Jesus? Whatever the reason, the house was filled to the brim, bursting at the seams. There wasn't even any room at the door to peer in. And whatever they actually came for, what they got was teaching, preaching. You see, Jesus wasn't just some run-of-the-mill miracle worker. His ministry and message wasn't just about changing things in the here and now. He brought a message of hope for the future. He spoke of the kingdom of God, which was already here, but in the future would become crystal clear. He didn't perform miracles and then send people on their merry little way. He told them of the world that was to come that was different from the world we live in now. He performed miracles in the here and now in order to poke holes in the proverbial sheet that separates heaven and earth. Every miracle removed a brick from the great wall. And though the wall still stands, we can see through it. Every town has its eccentrics, and my hometown was uh, no different. Um, in fact, we may have been all eccentrics in my hometown, uh, so that we didn't have any sane people. But nonetheless, one in particular we called Scary Barry. Not entirely sure what was wrong with Scary Barry, though rumors abounded. But what I do know is that he walked to the beat of his own drum, as eccentrics are wont to do. Some say he thought he was Jesus. He drove a hearse. He wore an old top hat with kinky, unwashed red hair spilling out the sides. And when he took off that top hat, his hair held the shape. And as far as I know, he was rarely seen without his cherished spotlight. And he would volunteer his services at churches uh, where he would unnecessarily cast the spotlight on the pastor <laughs> as he preached, sweating profusely. You see, Scary Barry, sorry, Scary Barry lived in an old house on the outskirts of town. And, and when I was in high school, rumor had it that he had taken all his furniture out one piece at a time and placed it in his front yard exactly as it had been in his house. And so the story goes, he set his house on fire. For whatever reason, he didn't want to live inside the house anymore. He, so he moved everything out. And this is a lot like what Jesus is doing when he performs these miracles. He's moving the things of heaven and bringing them to earth. One piece of furniture at a time. Like Scary Barry, 
He no longer wants to keep these things contained within the house where no one can see them. He no longer wants to keep these things separated, the things within from the things without. Jesus performs these miracles to bring a glimpse of heaven on earth. He began the demolition of the wall that separates the two. He made it so that his most valued possessions were no longer trapped inside where no one can see. He brought them out, made them visible. Heaven is no longer just the place we go to when we die. But as Jesus lives, it's something that we can still see glimpses of in his miraculous deeds. And then came bringing to him a paralytic man carried by four men. As the crowd is listening to Jesus, along come four men carrying their friend on a bed. Imagine a gurney uh, like you'd see in in an ambulance or even a military cot. Uh, This was not some fancy, comfortable bed. This was... uh, more about function than form. It was something that, would be easily, that could easily be carried, though there is, of course, a grown man's dead weight on it. What's interesting about this paralytic and his four friends is that they don't actually play a vocal role in this story. They're the people you most often remember, but they don't actually say anything. Jesus speaks The Pharisees question in their hearts. The crowds, ooh and ah. But the four men and their paralyzed burden act. They do. There are no wasted words, no time spent to analyze what they are thinking or how they respond. They are background characters who drive the story and drive the story they do. If the question of why the crowds gathered is unanswerable, we can at least muster a guess of why these men carried their crippled friend all this way to see Jesus. They'd heard he'd healed before. They wanted him to heal now. There's a slight problem. A glitch in an otherwise perfect plan. The crowd. Right? But their, their drive is great. They are unstoppable. And when they could not get near him because of the house, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. There are a number of motives that could have caused them to do what they did. Why not just wait outside? Why not... Come back some other time. Maybe it was their love for this man. That they wanted to see him walk again as they walked. Maybe it was desperation. They were tired of caring for this bedridden burden. Feeding him and bathing him and devoting so much of their valuable time to him. Maybe all they really wanted was for him to hear of the kingdom that was to come. To hear the promise that someday he would walk again. 
We'll never know what drove them to such desperate measures. But we do know how desperate they were. They climbed to the roof with this paralytic man unable to help them. And they removed the roof and made an opening to lower him down. Literally what this says is they unroofed the roof. Whatever that means. (laughs) Digging a hole. The language that Mark uses here shows us that this was not easy. Just as they had to sweat to carry this man all the way from all the way to this house. They had to sweat to hoist him onto the roof, and they had to sweat to dig a hole in the roof large enough to drop a grown man through. They were not intimidated by this obstacle because their reward was far too great. And here, I think it'll be helpful for us to stop and look at exactly what they had to do. Now, Peter's house was not like the houses we live in today. Peter was not a wealthy man. He was a fisherman turned madman, wandering around with this Jesus. So he did not have a big house. His house was probably just a one-room house, like a studio apartment in a shack. The roof of this house would have served many functions like ours. It would have kept the rain out. But it would have also been the place where they stored food and the place where the men and visitors would sleep. So it would have to have easy access, probably a ladder outside the front door. So these men didn't have to go in and climb the stairs. Obviously, if people are sleeping on the roof, the roof would have to be flat. And it didn't have shingles like our roofs. It had a mixture of mud and grass. Which means it could easily be broken and easily be repaired. In fact, they probably had to re-roof the roof. If unroof is a word, then re-roof is a word. Um, They had to re-roof the roof every fall before the rainy season. So here we have these four men... But they're not actually causing as much damage as we would commonly believe. But they're still destroying the roof, however easy and expensive it is to fix. So in one sense, we need to step away from our modern understanding that that this story sounds like it's saying. They're not demolishing the house and ripping up boards and shingles. But in another sense, we can easily imagine what great lengths they would have had to go to for their friend to see Jesus. So driven, so desperate, so confident, they ripped up the roof while Jesus was teaching and lowered their friend into the house. And what does Jesus say? You're healed. Get up. Walk. You've gotten what you came for. Now go fix the roof. No. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their faith, not the faith of this crippled and humiliated man, but the faith of those who were willing to vandalize and destroy someone else's property, the faith of these four men who were willing to go to any lengths possible 
to make sure their friend saw Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Guess what? You're still crippled. You're still stuck on this bed. You're still going to have to get your friends to carry you home, but at least your sins are forgiven. We'll come back to this. But we need to realize that neither Mark nor Matthew nor Luke tell us how this paralytic or his friends responded to this. We don't know if they got what they came for or felt shortchanged. All we know is that is what the Pharisees, the religious elite, the good Bible-thumping Jews thought to themselves. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes were those Pharisees, those religious elite who knew the Bible by heart. They were in charge of copying the Bible so that wealthy Jews could actually have their own personal copy. So they knew every word, every letter. They even counted the letters to make sure that nothing was added or taken away. So you couldn't pull a fast one on them because they knew the Bible by heart. So they responded to Jesus' words to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. But they didn't respond out loud. They were questioning in their hearts, literally dialoguing or debating within themselves. They knew something wasn't right. They thought to themselves, wrestled within themselves, why does this man speak like that? Why, what is he saying? Only God can forgive sins, not this guy. He's equating himself to God. He's a liar. That's what blasphemy is. Literally, it's injurious speech, words that hurt. When it comes to talking about God, these Pharisees don't have a sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me attitude, and they shouldn't. Because this is a serious claim that Jesus makes forgiving sins. Only God can forgive sins. And so it's a serious accusation that the scribes mull over in their hearts. And our English translations are actually a bit nicer than what the Greek actually says. What Mark wrote, what the scribes thought. They don't call him a man. They just ask themselves, What is this that speaks of blasphemies? They're so disturbed by his comments, they don't even give him the dignity of being a man. What is this that says such terrible things? This is an imposter, a fake, a terrorist to our faith. Only God forgives sins, and this, this, this says that he forgives sins. And immediately... Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, 
your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus knows exactly what he said. He knows exactly whose britches are in a bunch because of it. He doesn't need to know their hearts, but he does anyway. He sees them debating within themselves. He sees the scowls on their faces. He sees the glances that they make to each other in disgust. And he says, why are you doing this? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Which is easier, to say something or to do something? To talk about something or to make it happen? That's the whole point of this passage. This is why the four friends don't speak. They are doers. They don't waste their time dialoguing or debating or journaling or discussing or even thinking, they just do. Which is easier, to say something or to do it? To say it. It's easier to lie than it is to tell the truth. It's easy to promise your husband or your wife or your kids or your parents or your boss or your neighbors that you will do something as soon as you get a chance, but the difficulty lies in the follow-through. Which is easier, to build your son a treehouse so he'll stop bugging you, or to go out and buy the wood, draw up the plants, get the saw, nail the thing together? Which is easier, to say to your spouse that you'll take care of whatever chore or bill or phone call, or to stop what you're doing, Paul, and get off the couch and do it? Jesus says to the scribes, you've caught me. Here I was just doing the easy thing, but so that you'll know how much power I have, so that you'll know exactly who I am, I'm going to do the hard thing. Now, of course, Jesus knew what he was doing all along. This isn't a cop-out. Jesus isn't just riding the clock hoping that the paralytic man who lays in front of him will be happy with what he got. Well, at least he forgave my sins. No, he knew what he was going to do, and he did it so that everyone would know what he was capable of. He turned to the paralytic and said, get up, take your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. As I've already said, it seems strange that this paralytic, this paralyzed man, and his four friends remained silent in the midst of all this commotion. But according to the scriptures, they never said a word. We'll never know what they thought or how they felt, but we can put ourselves in their place. We can set ourselves before Jesus as a crippled man and respond to him in a number of ways. The early church father, this is you know, 1,800 years ago, Augustine said, 
You don't need to be paralyzed outwardly to be paralyzed inwardly. We may not have physical or emotional or financial ailments that we set before Jesus and we bring him to heal. Maybe we think we're all right as we are. We don't think of ourselves in terms of paralysis. But if we know our hearts, we must know that we're spiritually paralyzed. We are spiritually crippled. And we can see that in the ways we turn away from God and away from our... I'm sorry... We're spiritually crippled, and we see that in the ways that we turn away from God and live like we don't need Him. We can see this in the ways we put God in our Bibles and our spiritual lives on the shelf to gather dust, knowing that it's always there when we need it, but we don't need it now. Everything is fine now. God has become our plan B. Plan A is me taking care of myself, me looking out for number one. Plan B is turning to God in the midst of my failure. Again, and again, and again. Plan B is blowing the dust off God, removing the cobwebs, and starting over. Plan B is telling ourselves that this time, this time, it's going to stick. Things will be different. But inevitably, plan B goes back into storage and plan A reigns again. We don't need to be paralyzed outwardly to be paralyzed inwardly. But listen, we are all paralyzed outwardly. Certainly, I can walk and talk and play and work, so I'm not like this paralytic. But because of my sin, I can be insecure. I can be an emotional wreck. I can let anger or sadness consume me. I can lie. I can steal. I can cheat. I'm capable of all these things, and in some shape or fashion, I do all of these things. Because I am paralyzed by my sin. In my heart, I'm more concerned with whether or not you think I'm a good preacher than I am with whether or not I actually preach the gospel. I do not seek favor with God as much as I seek favor with men. I am spiritually paralyzed. And my spiritual paralysis manifests itself in physical ways. We all suffer from anxiety or depression or apathy or emotional abuse or substance abuse. We all long to be in control or to be content or to be comfortable. We wish we had a better job or a higher paying job because then and only then would we be truly happy. We wish we had a better spouse or better kids or a better education or a better social life or a better TV. Because then and only then would we be truly happy. The Bible is full of stories of Jesus healing paralytics and lepers, making the blind to see and the deaf to hear, changing the lives of sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, even raising the dead. 
But we skim over these stories, or at best, think of them as trite little tales of what happened in the past. When we need to dwell on these stories and identify ourselves in them. We are the paralytic and the leper. We are the blind being made to see afresh and the deaf being made to hear. We have lived as sinners and prostitutes before God. Hear me. We have run after pleasure and prosperity instead of running into the arms of our loving God. We even once were dead. But now we've been made alive. We were not merely spectators. We are full-fledged participants in the story of the gospel. And we lay before Christ paralyzed. And Christ tells us that our sins are forgiven. This is the truth of the gospel. But we're indignant. We're arrogant. We're cocky and we're entitled. We don't want Christ to forgive our sins. We want Him to heal us. We want Him to cure our paralysis, to fix our financial problems or our marriage problems or our spiritual problems. We lay before Christ paralyzed and we tell Him how to fix us. You wouldn't go to the doctor and say, Doc, I'm sick. Here's how to fix me. You go to an expert for expert advice. So why do we lay crippled before the God of the universe and say, you don't know how to fix me? Only I know how to fix me. Imagine if the story stopped before Jesus actually healed this paralyzed man. Imagine if it stopped with your sins are forgiven. Would that be a bad story? Would that be a bad ending? Because here's what Jesus is telling the paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. You are no longer a paralytic in the eyes of God. Your heart is now right with God. And when the kingdom comes, you will be in it. One day, you'll walk. One day, you'll be able to run and dance and jump and do backflips. But that day is not yet. You have to be patient. That day has not yet come, but it is coming. And when it comes, you'll be with me. Oh, how I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. Always thought it was about the football team. Learned different when I got to seminary. Look, there are numerous stories of God miraculously acting in people's lives. He cures cancer. He protects them from terrible accidents. He rescues them from substance abuse and addiction. But for every one of these stories are untold stories of God letting people go to their graves unhealed. Did God fail? Did God abandon that person to death because he didn't love them? Absolutely not. God brings healing in our lives for the same reason he brought it in the paralytic's life. 
so that others can see and know who he is. And God also chooses to let others go unhealed until he calls them home where everything is perfect. It's not for us to decide, but to trust that Jesus has got this. He has everything under control, and we just need to go along for the ride. Friends, if you believe in Jesus and you trust in him, Your sins are forgiven. And I have the authority to tell you this, not because I'm God, but because like each and every one of you, I've been called by God, saved from sin and promised eternal life. God may not heal all of my illnesses. He may not save me from all my shortcomings. He may not make me the perfect husband, father, preacher, student, golfer, But he has assured me, he has assured me that my sins are forgiven. And that one day, one day I will live with him forever. And there will be no sin, no sickness, no sadness, no death. And until that day, I must live as a paralytic. But I won't always be that way. But the strange irony of all of this is that what seemed to be the easier option was actually the hardest one. To merely say that sins are forgiven is one thing. But to ensure that this is true is a much different thing. In order for Jesus to prove that our sins were forgiven, he had to take up the cross and die. He had to suffer and bleed and gasp for air and fail so that his words would be successful. He had to lay dead for three days and rise again, defeating the hold that death has on us. What seemed to be the easy words to say were, in fact, the hardest words that Jesus ever had to speak because he knew what those words meant. He knew what those words pointed to. He knew what he had to do in order to make what he said have any meaning. And for us, he did those things. He died that we might live. He defeated death that we might never fear death. But know that to die is but the end of this chapter, and it's the chapter to come. That's worth reading. He went back up into heaven to look after us, to look over us, and to care for us, and gather us to himself that one day he would make a world full of paralytics into a world full of redeemed and restored children. If you believe this, your sins are forgiven. 